Great. Thank you guys for coming. So before um, I introduce today's speaker, I just want to make an announcement for next week. Next week is also another Grand Rounds. It's going to be on the topic of moral injury or burnout. Just so you guys know, it's actually going to be located at Davidge Hall across the street. So you'll get the email about it next week, but just don't forget it's at Davidge Hall. So it's my pleasure today to introduce the speakers. So they're from University of Pittsburgh, which is where I just came from. They flew down today just to speak with you guys. So today we have Dr. Catalin Toma and Dr. Belinda Rivera here from University of Pittsburgh. Um, Dr. Toma is actually the head of interventional cardiology at University of Pittsburgh, and Dr. Rivera is the director of the PE response team at University of Pittsburgh coming from the pulmonary side. So I'm not going to belabor their introductions because we cut into their time a little bit. But so if you guys can welcome me, uh, join me in welcoming these guys to talk with us. Well, thanks for the invitation. We're very excited to be here um, and love Andy, so we're, we're here to support her, uh, her team. So hopefully we can convince you that this is a good idea by the end of this talk. Um, and we're just going to talk about all aspects of PE care uh, and a little bit of chronic at the end as well. So, and Really? Okay. Okay, so we're going to start with a case, 76-year-old female with a history of hypertension, a stroke, recently diagnosed with endometrial cancer, had some vaginal bleeding, presenting with acute shortness of breath. Uh, you can see the CT scan here uh, has a large clot burden approximately and also has a significant amount of RV strain uh, with uh, increased RV to LV ratio. Uh, blood pressure, though, is, uh, is uh, stable with uh, a blood systolic of 109, heart rate of 77, although she has a history of being on a beta blocker, like uh, most patients uh, are at this age, on three liters of oxygen. Um, a troponin mildly elevated and a BNP as well. You can see there uh, we calculated her, her risk um, classification uh, with a PESI score, PE score index, which we'll go over um, and uh, it was a, a class five, which had a 25% mortality. Um, here's her echocardiogram. So you could see clearly a dilated uh, right ventricle um, and uh, had a uh, normal LV uh, uh, and the PA systolic pressure was estimated at 52. Um, importantly in this uh, echocardiogram, we see that there's no obvious uh, right-sided thrombus, which Makes, uh, it makes it important because we want to um, see if they have ability to access for any catheter intervention, so which is would be limited with a clot in the right side. So before I tell you what happened to this patient, uh, we're going to just dive into why PE is important. So almost a million cases in the U.S. per year. Uh, a lot of them are going to be hospitalized under your care. And even though... Uh, there, uh, the, the, the risk of death is still uh, close to 200,000 patients a year. So this is quite significant. And a lot of um, patients that do survive are still going to have some sequela, some complication. Uh, they could have things called uh, post-PE syndrome, uh, which is just exercise limitation, uh, or they're going to be short of breath, or they're just not going to be able to go back to their baseline. And uh, a, a good percent, uh, up to 4%, could develop uh, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, which is probably the worst complication after a PE. Um, 
So here's the natural history of PEs. I think that a lot of us uh, see them in the acute setting and we just kind of forget of what happens to the patient. We just uh, don't really know. Um, the good news is that most of them do resolve completely, so they go through a full recovery. But there's a good amount that have partial recovery um, and recurrence. So if you come off anticoagulation and patients that are unprovoked have a th up to a 30% recurrence in the first 10 years, so that is quite high, and that's why we want to make sure that they get followed up and not taken off anticoagulation when it's not appropriate. Um, and you can see here... The clear difference between what an acute clot looks like and a chronic clot looks like, the chronic being more of a fibrotic, rubberous material. Um, this slide shows that the incidence of PE is still on the rise. So this is including different studies um, in, the, in different parts of the world, and in, in all of them, the PE incidence is rising. And this is because, one, we've gotten better at diagnosing PE, so there's readily available CT scans everywhere. Um, and, uh, and, and we just like are diagnosing more and more, um, maybe over diagnosing if, in a way. Uh, but the other thing that the other part of the slide here is that the case fatality rate has decreased. And that's not just because anticoagulation has been in place, but other interventions as well. Um, and because we've gotten more aggressive in the care. So it's still the third most common cardiovascular cause of death following um, heart attacks and strokes. So it's a very important uh, uh, disease to uh, have, you know, on the radar. So the American classification of the, by the AHA had three main sort of divisions of how a PE is stratified. So low risk are most patients. There are going to be those that are normal blood pressure, that they're not going to have any biomarkers that are positive, meaning troponin or the um, BNPs and that they're gonna have a normal RV. Submassives or intermediate risk are gonna be those who are still normotensive, however, now they're having signs of RV strain, whether it is on CT or echo. Um, and that could be either the dilation or dysfunction um, or elevated biomarkers like the BNP or the troponin. Massives are the minority of the patients, however, obviously they have a higher mortality and that's why they call them, they call them high risk. And those are gonna be hypotensive, with a systolic of less than 90 for over 15 minutes that are uh, in shock with pressure requirement or are pulseless, like had a cardiac arrest. The Europeans um, had done several revisions of this, uh, and the most recent one was uh, uh, published this year. You can see there, 2019. And uh, they basically, in addition to dividing them into three, the high and intermediate and low, what they also did was that intermediate category, they subdivided that into two. So intermediate high and intermediate low. And the reason why they did that is because the mortality significantly changes when you jump from one category to the other. The difference between the two groups is that the intermediate um, high is going to have both markers of strain on imaging and biomarkers. And the intermediate low is going to have one or none of these positive. Um, and that's a very important distinction. So you could see here that most of the patients luckily have a low risk PEs, um, but there's still a good amount, about 40% of them, that are gonna be in that intermediate category, whether it is the intermediate low or the intermediate high. And here's the mortality difference. So it jumps from the intermediate low being at around 5% to up to 20%. So it is very important to distinguish these two patients because one of them is, has a much higher risk 
of not doing well. And I have here the three main sort of pillars of um, prognostication that we use. One, which we mentioned, is imaging. The second is biomarkers. And the third is the PESI score that I mentioned at the beginning with the case, and we'll go, we'll go over what that means on the next slide. I also added here lactate because there's more and more growing data that's supporting uh, the use of lactate to also risk stratify these patients. So as you know, in sepsis, um, lactate indicates a, a risk of mortality. So very similarly here, a lactate can also be used to know who has a risk of not doing well. So this is the PE severity index or the PESI. There's an original version and a simplified version. Um, it has primarily most of the common risk factors that you already know that are going to put someone at a higher risk, right? So if they have, if they're older, if they have a comorbidities like cancer uh, or chronic heart or lung disease, um, what's their heart rate if, if, if they're tachycardic, if they're hypotensive, the kipnic, uh, or if they need oxygenation. Um, and the simplified version, which is like on MedCalc and super easy to, um, to do, would be basically giving a single point to one of those criteria. If you have no points, your 30-day mortality risk is 1%. But if you have a single point or more, automatically that increases your risk by 10% of a complication in the next month. So it gives you an idea of, you know, who's not going to do well. Um, this is the prognostication that we that we obtain uh, uh, with this meta-analysis with, with RV imaging and troponin. So it includes both the imaging and the troponin. And you can see that... For both of them, when they're elevated, it increases your odds ratio of dying. So importantly, other information that we can get from an echocardiogram, in addition to the RV strain, um, is whether they have right heart thrombus. Um, and that's why I included this here, because sometimes we say, oh, you know what, if, if, if we have a pretty significant RV strain on a CT scan, do we really need an echo? What else, what other information can we get from an echo? Especially say like it's 3 a.m., we might not have an echo available in the next 30 minutes. So um, if you're considering an intervention, perhaps it's really important to rule out whether there's RV clot because you don't want to put in a catheter through a mobile clot, right? So that's gonna cause embolism of this uh, uh, clot. Um, but this slide also gives you a, other, you know, different views of where you can um, measure the, the strain and uh, just uh, from different uh, views of the echo. Importantly, it's very, uh, there, the, this risk stratification is additive. So what that means is when you add more and more information, then you get better at stratifying who's not going to do well. So if you have the SPESI alone, like I said, you only had a 10%, but then you, if you add the BNP, the troponin, and plus if they had mobile clot in, a, in the lower extremities with a DVT, then that could lead up to that 25% that I mentioned earlier. Now that we've diagnosed them and risk stratify them, we get to decide how we're going to treat a patient. And there's so many alternatives that sometimes it's very difficult to navigate. What is really the right way to treat this patient? And as you can see here, there are multiple options. Um, and we really sometimes don't know necessarily what's the best option. And because some of these um, different interventions lack randomized control trial, then we have to call 
people that know what they're talking about. And um, that people that, that those people are sometimes called PERT or PE response teams. Um, so they're usually multidisciplinary. So vascular surgery, interventional radiology, cardiology, pulmonary, critical care, hematology, uh, surgery, all those people might be uh, part of these um, and they see PEs all the time. So they have the experience to deal with uh, what are the options. They, uh, the other advantage is there's a centralized single activation. So you don't have to consult the five different services at once. With a single phone call, you can get an answer from all those services together um, and unified. They could assess your patient fairly quickly, individualize the treatment approach based on whatever the bleeding risk is of your patient and uh, their, their, their benefit that they would be obtaining from a given intervention. Um, they start the therapy right then and there. And then also, because sometimes we don't know what's the best thing to do, we follow up patients through research. And then we know at the long end, in five years, how do these patients do over time? Would it be better to do this therapy versus the other therapy? So if we start a registry, then we're better able to know what would be most appropriate for an overall patient population. So... These are all the teams that may or may not be involved in, um, and parts look different at different hospitals. So you use basically what's what you have available, and um, you take advantage of what's uh, what's strong in the place that you practice. Previously, this is how PERT or PE care. Uh, used to be, right? So there's uh, so many arrows because you really don't know who to call, uh, especially someone coming from the outside. If they come from a different hospital, they might not do that. Are they better served in the surgical ICU or CT ICU or medical ICU? Really don't know. And then you have to make all these phone calls to decide who's going to actually be seeing the patient first. So... <laughs> put this slide together because we really um, uh, should be working together and uh, it doesn't mean that all the time things work out but at least we're sort of working together towards a common goal. So uh, these are uh, the uh, uh, PERT consortium uh, uh, recommended guidelines on how to do a PERT activation. So usually after you suspect or already diagnose the PE, um, and gets a single activating system, whether it is via phone call or pager. There's a PERT leader that that might be from different um, uh, specialties. Some, in some hospitals, it might be cardiology. In some hospitals, it might be pulmonary or critical care uh, or vascular medicine. Um, and it could be an attending or a fellow, uh, depending on what they have available. That person collects all the patient's information. And then they decide if they need to involve other people. So do I need to call my interventionalist or do I need to call my surgeon? Do I need to call my ECMO team? Who do I want to activate for this specific patient? And then just execute the plan. These are all the treatment options that we have. And uh, this only was uh, created to serve as a, uh, a, a very vague guideline. So as you can see here, the first point in time um, that this treatment algorithm recommends uh, doing is anticoagulation. So everyone should be starting on anticoagulation regardless of whatever you're going to decide to do later. The second thing is how's your blood pressure? So you're, if, if you're hemodynamically unstable, then we don't care about your stratification. So we don't care about your echo. We don't care about if you have uh, a positive troponin. Um, and then you go through this high-risk sort of massive side. And if you have conjugations through thrombolysis, then you might consider doing any of these given interventions. 
And on the other hand, if you're hemodynamically stable and not requiring a vasopressor, then you do have time to obtain that echo and look at the whatever SPESI score is and get the troponin. Um, and you can see here that if there any of those are positive, then you're, you're classified in the intermediate risk category. And then you can go into whether you have that intermediate high or intermediate low risk PE. If you have an intermediate high PE in addition to anticoagulation, then you might want to consider doing additional interventions. And that also depends on how your patient's doing. So if the heart rate of the patient in the ER was 110, and then after getting some fluids, they may, and when they hit the MICU or the ICU, they they get a heart rate of like 85 to 90, maybe you get a little bit more reassured. But if it's like six hours later and their heart rate is still like 120 or something like that, then that might be a time to reevaluate the strategy um, and be more aggressive with um, interventions. One thing that is very important is that PERT does not meet intervention. And uh, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of people think that that is the case. So, and, and these are just uh, data from three different institutions that have had PERT for years. And um, they just, you can see that the primary uh, way of treating a patient uh, is just through anticoagulation. So what about supporting the RV with inhaled NO, right? So we could we have the option of doing some things that are kind of like maybe we think that are, are going to freeze time and then give us a little bit more um, um, time to perhaps repeat an echo and see how the RV is doing. And this was actually done and published this earlier this year by Jeff Klein. So the ENOPE trial was a multi-center trial that uh, was double-blinded and, and, and randomized into either receiving uh, inhaled NO through a nasal cannula or just placebo, um, they included 78 patients that had high risk of massive. So they were people who are RV dysfunction plus a troponin that was positive. And their endpoint was not met. So even though there was a, there was an improvement uh, and a trend towards the uh, um, uh, normalization of both the RV and the troponin, this was uh, actually not significant. So going now through the uh, different uh, therapies, I'm going to start obviously with the medical therapies, uh, so systemic thrombolysis being the obvious one. And sometimes we think, oh, systemic TPA is like, you know, it's uh, it's like it should be it should be like the first thing we think about. And um, this is the actual only randomized controlled trial that uh, has done uh, sys uh, systemic TPA in massive PE and included only eight patients. So believe it or not, eight patients. So you can do it. You can still do it. <laughs> It's possible. Um, published in 1995, so obviously way back. But what they did was they, after they randomized four people into the heparin and, um, and, and all four died, and the four people to systemic TPA, and they all survived, they had to stop the enrolling people because they, they felt like they were going to um, need to treat them with systemic TPA. And then all the evidence that we have afterwards are based on meta-analysis. So this one was an earlier meta-analysis that um, included all comers that were treated with systemic TPA. And as you can see here, in all PEs, there was not, there isn't any uh, significant reduction in mortality. Only when you stratify them into massive, you were able to reduce their mortality from 20% to about 10%. So I would say that's a pretty good gain. Um, however, as you know, uh, there is a loss, which is bleeding. So uh, from this other meta-analysis in the more recent times, 2014, you can see here that the uh, all-cause mortality benefit does remain 
However, there's a very significant high increase of bleeding. So major bleeding of about 9% and intracranial hemorrhage, which obviously we all want to avoid, is about 1%. What about thrombolysis and cardiac arrest, right? So you're dying, maybe you don't have time to do any other intervention, let's just give you TPA. So this trial included 1,000 patients that had all comers. So everyone that had a cardiac arrest was randomized into either placebo or systemic TPA, and they didn't find any mortality benefit. This is all comers, not just PEs. So in this trial, only about a 6% rate of PEs were seen um, afterwards. Um, the French registry uh, published this data on using TPA on patients that were out of the hospital um, and that were suspected to have a PE. But what you could see here is that really only 3% at the end actually were confirmed to have a PE. So, so even though there, were, uh, there was a survival at discharge that was met, um, they may, may have not identified or treated the, the right group. Um, obviously, it's very difficult to predict who's having a PE if they present with a cardiac arrest. This trial, it's a much smaller trial, but the PIAPET trial was a um, um, in-hospital cardiac arrest known PE population. So in here, 23 patients were randomized, and what they saw was that there was an, uh, a benefit in the uh, return of uh, spontaneous circulation time. There was a benefit for survival to discharge, a pretty high one, you might say and a survival at two years, also pretty high. So it does say that when you have a confirmed PE, giving them systemic TPA will save your life, especially if you maybe don't have time to do anything else. So we talked about bleeding as a complication of systemic lysis. Well, how about using low-dose thrombolysis, right? So if we, instead of using 100 milligrams of TPA, which is the recommended dose, if you use 50, would it still work and it does and it has less bleeding? The answer is yes. Um, there's still no benefit in all-cause mortality, but there is a, 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 a significantly reduced risk of bleeding. And that is why the PAFO-3 is an ongoing trial. It's in Europe. It doesn't include, I think, any American site. Um, but they're trying to test reduced dose lysis versus anticoagulation in the intermediate risk um, uh, patients. Um, they are going to uh, include patients that are slightly sicker. Uh, so in addition to being having the RV strain by the RV to LV diameter and having a positive troponin, they need to have one of these criteria that have it to, to make them have an elevated risk of early hemodynamic collapse. So either a blood pressure that's kind of like on the borderline end or need for uh, fluid resuscitation or low-dose pressors within two hours of admission persistent sinus tachycardia, a need for oxygenation, or uh, chronic here, chronic heart failure. Um, so, so we'll see, this is, this should be, uh, this is currently enrolling and it's probably not gonna be coming out in the next like publication, maybe in two years or so. So the same group uh, did the, the original PAFO trial. Um, they used full dose TPA to treat intermediate risk patients because they felt like, well, if it worked for massive, then why don't we test it for the submassive population? And they actually did include patients that had RV strain plus a positive troponin, and their primary outcome was all-cause mortality or hemodynamic collapse, a composite of that. 
And what they showed was, as you could see here, there was a, uh, there was a significant improvement um, in that all-cause mortality or hemodynamic collapse. However, when you look at the results kind of closely, what you see here is that there are no difference in the deaths in both groups. So it did not make your patient survive. What it did what was it prevented them from decompensating. So it prevented your patient from maybe going on a presser or having a, a cardiac arrest or, or becoming more hypotensive. And it, it, it was at a truly uh, unfortunate increased risk of bleeding. So uh, five times uh, increased of major bleeding and 12 times increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage. So then we say, okay, fine, so maybe then we shouldn't be using, we have to be cautious about using uh, systemic TPA in that intermediate risk population. Um, but what if we can justify using it because it will prevent you from having complications at the long term, right? So if we, if it, it, it's not going to make me live longer, but it will make me more functional or having uh, complications like pulmonary hypertension later on, can I justify the use? And what you can see here are that the first four, um, four trials that I include here are smaller trials. That's still some, some um, good amount of numbers. Here's the N and then the total patients that had TPA in each of them. They looked at uh, different parameters, either prevalence of pulmonary hypertension by echo or decreased risk of recurrent PE, um, RV dysfunction uh, with dyspnea or exercise intolerance. And in all these first four, uh, even though there are smaller trials, but some of them were prospective and they were positive, meaning, okay, it looks like we can prevent pulmonary hypertension from happening. However, the largest trial to date was published in 2017 and what they did was they followed up that, that's the massive trial that we talked about, the PATHO-1, uh, and followed them up for a median time of 37 months. And it turns out that unfortunately there isn't any difference. So there's no difference uh, in the patients that were treated with TPA versus anticoagulation alone in their future um, dyspnea, exercise limitation, mortality, or pulmonary hypertension or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension in the in those um, first years after therapy. So these are then this is it's kind of summarizes what uh, the different guidelines will recommend for systemic thrombolysis. As you can see here, most of the evidence is saying that they would support the use when there's high risk and low or high risk of PE and low bleeding risk when there's cardiac arrest uh, that is either confirmed or suspected, and in an intermediate risk population when there is evidence of hemodynamic instability, meaning they're, they're, they're kind of on the verge of collapse and converting from a submassive to a massive, that would be an appropriate use. Um, and now we're gonna switch over to the interventional side of things with Dr. Tomo. Just uh, echoing what um, Belinda was saying. Thank you very much for allowing us to uh, to come and present and talk to you. Uh, I'm just going to 
talk about the interventional side of things in the treatment of acute PE. This is a document that just came out at the last PERT meeting that kind of summarizes the field, and it's a good read about um, what do we have currently and why are we here. Um, and um, what are the, you saw what we can do with medical therapy, with heparin analytics. What else can we, uh, can we do better? So one thing is that we can get these patients out of the hospital faster, hopefully. Um, there's also this issue of residual pulmonary um, vascular obstruction and CTEF and CTED that we may be able to impact with additional therapies. And then the mortality that remains fairly high in massive P in particular. Um, this is data from the uh, Mass General PERT Registry, um, uh, which shows that in massive PEs, which are the blue line, the mortality remains very high. It's 40%, and about 45% of this are PE-related. And even in the intermediate, in the submassive, the mortality is relatively high, 12, 12%, 12%, with 30% being PE-related. So it's not... We, we still have a problem with the, with the uh, massives and even submassive PEs. Uh, this is data from our own institution. Um, we looked at all the patients that come with submassive P to the cath lab, we do hemodynamics in them, and despite the fact that they appear to be hemodynamically stable, about 45% of them have a cardiac index of less than 1.8, so they have subclinical shock. And these are probably the patients who, um, who do poorly um, subsequently, but we don't have a good way of um, determining that up front. So what options do we have for catheter-based treatment? Uh, we have, there are two major categories. One is this catheter-directed lysis, where we administer a relatively low dose of thrombolytics via catheter in the pulmonary artery. The other option is percutaneous thrombectomy, where we actually go in and take the quad out. So let's talk about the, uh, the first one, the most commonly used nowadays is this ECOS catheters. These are, uh, it's ultrasound-facilitated lysis, although a lot of people argue with the fact that whether the ultrasound does anything. These are multi-hole catheters that are placed across the um, clot in the pulmonary arteries. This is what it looks like angiographically. Each of those dark spots is a uh, ultrasound emitter that pulses high-energy ultrasound, and it's supposed to facilitate penetration of the drug in the clot. Um, the data in the PE field in the interventional world is very limited. I mean, from a cardiologist's perspective, these are very small trials. This is, in fact, the only randomized controlled trial in this field that looked at um, ECOS in submassive PE, 24 versus 24 patients, um, looking at the surrogate endpoint of RV to LV ratio, which is a marker of RV dysfunction. And as you can see, the trial met its primary endpoint, which was a reduction in the RV to LV ratio at 24 hours, which was significantly better than heparin alone. Now note that at 90 days, everything catches up. So at 90 days, there's recovery of RV function across the board. If you're looking at their echo, there's perhaps slightly better um, RV function in the eco-treated arm. Again, this is 24 versus 24 patients. Very, very limited data. The next um, study that um, the company supported was the Seattle trial, which is actually a single-arm registry, uh, looking at slightly sicker, more real-life population, and again, what you can see, and this is consistent and consistent with our experience as well, that there is a rapid recovery of RV function. By rapid, I mean 12, 24 hours. Um, to move the field forward, um, the um, um, ECOS people started looking at lower dose of uh, TPA to see if we can get the same result with slightly lower doses of TPA. This is the optimized trial. Again, each arm in this, um, uh, in this trial has a, a handful of patients. 
But apparently you can get the same result with only 4 milligrams of TPA, the same you would get with 12 milligrams of TPA um, in, in terms of RV to LV ratio reduction, which is, again, the common surrogate endpoint that you'll see across these trials, for better or worse. Um, this is the data from our experience. Um, we measure the PA pressures and the PA sat at the time of the catheter removal the next day. And you do see reductions in PA pressures consistently. You do see an improvement in the cardiac output consistently. Um, in 12 hours following the uh, procedure, the patients do feel better. In fact, a lot of them get on oral anticoagulation the following day um, and move out of the unit. So we, uh, we wanted to see uh, what is the impact of this therapy in a sicker patient population. It's, it's very hard to determine retrospectively who is submassive and massive because they don't have ICD code specific for the for that subclassification. So we said, okay, let's just look at patients who went to an ICU across our system um, for, for a couple of years and look at patients who got lice, catheter-directed lysis versus standard of care. And to be honest with you, we didn't expect to see much of it. We wanted to make sure this procedure is safe primarily, not nothing else more than that. Um, and we did propensity matching, making sure these patients are identical and they, you know, they have the same age, the same uh, PESI score and so forth. And there seems to be, at least in this retrospective analysis, a survival benefit of catheter-directed lysis to medical therapy that starts relatively early, as you would expect, um, to the point where it becomes significant at one year. Again, this is retrospective data. Take it with a grain of salt. There's a study that's going to look at this in a more prospective fashion. And the uh, thinking behind this is that perhaps there is a vulnerable period that lasts about a month in these patients with submassive PEs, when they get another hit, they get sepsis, they have another problem, then they, they, they have poor outcomes from that. Uh, but it's because of their RV is not recovery yet. So these are patients who can have bleeding, who can have sepsis, who can have other problems. This is how the mortality groups, if you look in the heparin arm, a lot of the P-related mortality is in exactly that first month. So very interesting hypothesis generating um, data that we are planning on looking at further. How about the other side of the uh, equation, the thrombectomy, which is starting to gain a lot more momentum lately. Um, I'm going to talk primarily about this Flotriva device. Um, the Penumbra company has a, an aspiration catheter as well. Um, this is what the Flotriva system looks like. It's composed of a catheter of a large bore aspiration catheter, essentially with a, a couple of disc forms that uh, can help dislodge the clot. Um, the indigo system from Penumbra is a smaller bore, eight French um, aspiration catheter that's being studied in the extract PE trial, which is just completed enrollment. This is what this uh, Inari system looks like. So you basically get across the clot, and you can either aspirate the clot with this large bore catheter. We're talking about 20 French to 24 French. There's a 16 French now, too. Um, or you can use these forms to uh, get across the clot and dislodge the clot. What's important about this is that, and this was, you know, I had to learn about this, um, you got to get a little more technically savvy with your pulmonary anatomy and with the, with the procedural aspect of things. Ecos catheters are very easy to place. This is a little more complicated. You need to know where you are. Um, you need to have some skills to navigate uh, these catheters across the right heart. And it's also important to understand that these patients can get sicker during this procedure, so you need to be prepared to support them if, if, um, if, if it's necessary. Um, and this is kind of one of the first cases that we did that was a really nice uh, case report. This is what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to uh, 
in addition to getting very beautiful angiograms to improve perfusion to the lungs. So you see the pre-images up top, you can really appreciate that there's no perfusion to largely to the right lung and to the inferior um, aspect of the left lung and improved perfusion, not perfect after the uh, clot is out. The PA pressures are better, the PSAT gets better. Um, uh, patients is off oxygen that same day. The, um, this device was studied in the uh, FLARE um, um, study, which is, again, a single-arm study looking at RV2LV ratio with the Flotriva device. It met its, uh, its um, endpoint. There was a significant reduction of 48 hours in the RV2LV ratio. Unfortunately, this is the standard by which all the companies are going by um, as opposed to having harder endpoints. The good thing about this is that there's low risk of bleeding. So despite the fact that we're using a large bore catheter, the access-related bleeding was actually zero in this trial, 150 patients. Um, very different than um, bleeding in the other um, catheter-directed um, lysis trials. Um, again, one thing that we said is, okay, well, this looks like a potentially good therapy for really sick patients, right? Because you go in and you take the clot out and you can Im immediately improve their hemodynamics without lytics. So something akin to uh, what we do for acute MI, um, as opposed to giving them lytics, we go and do a mechanical, um, uh, mechanical procedure. So we looked at our experience across four centers. Of course, we don't have that many massive PE patients that we've done. Um, and we, had, we kind of had to expand the definition of massive a little bit to include uh, patients who had evidence of cardiogenic shock by right heart cath and patients who were intubated. Just 27 patients, basically. Uh, but we did get significant hemodynamic improvement. Again, acutely, this is not at 12 or 48 hours. This is pre after the procedure, so two hours later or one hour later. Improved uh, decreased PA pressure, improved cardiac output, and only one patient died in this cohort um, immediately following the procedure. It was an elderly gentleman with, presented with cardiac arrest. Six, six patients in this group had CPR prior to coming to the lab. So they were pretty sick. So this, it's, again, this is just a very tentative um, um, attempt at looking at the data and see what, uh, what can be done. Uh, we're planning on looking at this, and again, in a more prospective manner. These are some of the trials in the space. Uh, the sunset trial is something that's done at our institution by the vascular group, looking at the catheter, the, the effect of ultrasound, basically, in the, in the uh, efficacy of lysis. The higher uh, patho trial is looking at CDL versus anticoagulation for high-risk submassive. There's a similar trial in Europe, PE tract, uh, in the um, U.S. And then the flash registry is a flotriver, um, long-term registry, looking at um, uh, flotriver-treated patients, um, all comers, basically. A little bit about ECMO, I, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, so um, mechanical circulatory support for P is a very important part of the uh, treatment algorithm. You have to get, um, you have to, to engage the, uh, the ECMO team or whoever does uh, mechanical circulatory support in an institution. ECMO is obviously the preferred, uh, the, the, the way to go. Uh, there are a couple of RV support devices that uh, some people argue that don't make any sense when you still have obstruction downstream from, um, from where your device is. Um, and when do you think about that? Obviously, with circulatory collapse where you have effective CPR, um, but also for hemodynamic support during revascularization, right? So if somebody comes to the lab for a thrombectomy uh, and they're really sick, it may be worth discussing with the ECMO guys about supporting them for the procedure. Um, and even intubating these borderline patients. I mean, as you all know, intubating these patients cuts their preload, and they um, they often crush and burn from from intubation if you have to intubate them. So, 
Um, uh, circulatory support expertise is critical in a PER team, so uh, it's very important to keep that um, keep that in mind. But again, this is some of the data um, summarized in the in the table. Uh, good survival rates. I would not advocate ECMO for this for uh, as it's a standalone therapy. I think that's especially today that we have other options to to remove the obstruction. I think um, you should definitely consider additional therapies to remove the obstruction. Uh, this is a slide from uh, Dr. Gurley um, depicting how ECMO should be done um, um, to avoid complication space. So what you see here, this is done percutaneously in the cath lab with angio guidance, with ultrasound guidance. So you make sure you put that cannula in the right place. You have an anti-grade perfusion cannula. And it's also pre-closed. This little tie that you see next to the arterial cannula is the pre-closed suture that was used to, 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 to uh, pre-close the um, the um, arteriotomy hole, so it's easier to take it out in the cath lab without surgical intervention. So if ECMO gets to the point where it's low risk, I'm, I think we're going to use it more and have have a little more freedom to operate. It's also very different than a cardiac arrest patient in that the RV almost always recovers. So if you support them and you give them a chance, um, they, they can recover and, um, and move on. So. Um, surgical thrombectomy, just one slide. There are centers that have a very strong surgical thrombectomy program. There are surgeons who take an interest in this. Uh, it can be done safely. We just saw a presentation at the PERT team from uh, Westchester Medical Center, I think, where uh, they basically have 2 or 3% mortality with uh, surgical thrombectomy. So very good, very good outcomes. Uh, but again, this is very team-dependent, very surgeon-dependent. Uh, so back to our case. Um, Elderly lady, cancer, uh, she's not massive. She has a lot of clot, but she's not technically a massive PE. Uh, it's a high-risk submassive PE, high PESI score. She's bleeding, so we don't want to give her any lytics, even low dose. So we decided to take her to a uh, percutaneous mechanical thrombectomy and potentially put a filter in her because she may have potentially issues with anticoagulation down the road. These are her angiograms. Um, as you can see, lots of clot on the right. This is usually where the clot stops, um, in the, where the uh, truncus anterior takes off with that bifurcation. Um, you see the same thing on the left with decreased perfusion. Um, the cardiac index is 2.2, so not that bad. High uh, pulmonary vascular resistance. Um, this is an aspiration catheter placed right against the clot. Um, we use this large bore aspiration syringe, and we're taking this kind of clot out. This is not a typical disclaimer. This is not a typical result. This is one of the most extreme results that we, we pulled out. This clot was actually so heavy that you can feel it in your hand, uh, the, the weight of the clot. Um, we did the same thing on the other side. On the other side, we had to use the discs to uh, dislodge the clot a little bit and then um, aspirate it. And you're not getting a lot of clot out of there, but the perfusion you'll see looks uh, pretty good on that side to it on the, on the repeat angiograms. Not perfect again, but much better, um, and her hemodynamics um, um, mirror that, basically. So um, she was readmitted two weeks later with, uh, with bleeding. Again, this is the, the patients who bleed are, are very high risk for, for problems, for recurrent problems. They have to come off anticoagulation oftentimes. Uh, she had her uh, surgery, and she's doing fine six months later. So... Um, what is the impact of uh, catheter-based therapies and, and those uh, um, objectives that we had earlier? Well, they do get better faster. Do we know of any impact on the CTED or CTED? We have no idea. Hopefully the flash registry is going to specifically look at some of that. 
Uh, and also, we don't know anything about mortality. We don't have any randomized control data to support that. Um, but there are some, you know, there's some suggestion from the retrospective data that we have that it might uh, be a, um, a reasonable therapy to consider. Uh, these are the guidelines. Again, the guidelines fall a little bit behind their time um, with, the, with respect to, um, to cath-directed therapy, but you have to be consistent with what the evidence uh, is out there. The last column is the document that came out at the PERT meeting just a few months ago um, that Belinda had, a, had a, an important role in, in putting together. And again, you see it's, it's just in high-risk patients with high risk of bleeding or failed systemic thrombolysis, which I'm not sure it's a, it's a, it's a good indication for catholysis, or intermediate PE that continue to deteriorate as an alternative to systemic TPA. Uh, just one slide about the importance of follow-up. These patients often remain symptomatic post-P, and if you're talking about a young patient who had a very vibrant and active life before, um, and at six months they, they can do what they, they used to do, that doesn't necessarily mean they have CTEF, but they could have something called CTED, so they have obstruction but not pulmonary hypertension, uh, or they can just have this PE syndrome that we don't really know what it, uh, you know where it comes from, um, either it's some deconditioning that happens peri- acute event that uh, persists or we're not sure what it is. We also don't have really good tools to um, uh, objectively um, um, investigate these patients. We're doing a lot of um, CPETs and invasive CPETs to understand if there is a uh, uh, VCO2 um, uh, increase or a VQ mismatch, essentially, that would suggest that it's the residual uh, obstruction that's the problem. And, of course, the, the CTEF is only 5% probably even less than that now with the, with the current therapies, um, but it's something that's important to be um, addressed early because these patients do poorly later on. This is the follow-up algorithm again from the PERT consortium document. Um, I'm not going to dwell too much in this, but, um, on this, but uh, the important thing is if the patients are symptomatic, they should be. First of all, it's important for these patients to have follow-up. Uh, very few patients come for follow-up, they go to their PCP and they say, okay, well, you're on anticoagulation, you're fine, you had a PE, that's, that's all good and done. But if they are symptomatic, they have to be, um, it's a good idea to investigate them to make sure they don't have, uh, they don't start developing um, uh, CTEP. So just um, to summarize both our talks, basically, um, PE remains a very common um, um, uh, uh, cause of death. Unfortunately, a lot of this is pre-hospital. A lot of this are cardiac arrest. Uh, systemic thrombolysis is for massive PE based on a four versus four um, uh, trial from the 90s. Um, it comes with increased bleeding. There's a lot of patients who come with massive PE that are not candidates for uh, TPA, and I think that's kind of the where the mortality, with those high rates of mortality, come from. Cathodirected therapy, including lysis or thrombectomy, may be sub useful in some massive PEs with a high risk of decompensation, decompensation and uh, PERT teams are instrumental in, in, uh, in uh, rapid consultation and create a very um, good work environment that actually will translate into the, uh, the chronic therapies of this patient. This is the part of the same discussion that we have with, uh, with regard to CTEF and, and CTEP, um, which is one of the, uh, the long-term uh, consequences of, um, of PE. So with that, I'm going to give you a beautiful picture of Pittsburgh at night. This is When you come into town, this is what you see. Um, thank you for your attention, and uh, hopefully we have some time for some questions. All right. Thank you both. Um, 
So Belinda, I'll start with you. Um, how do you choose your anticoagulation strategy when that is the route that you guys want to go? Sub-Q, IV, oral, when do you transition, when do you not? So I can tell you this is something that we've looked into our data recently. And uh, up until maybe about six months ago, six months to a year ago, we were using mostly IV heparin. We were, even from the emergency room, patients were started on heparin, mostly Ebola-based therapy, and then they get started on the PE protocol, followed up with 10A levels. Um, however, we actually looked at our data and we found that even patients that were correctly placed on the protocol, because that's an issue, right? So there's like a high-risk protocol, there's an AFib protocol, um, and, and they might not be placed on the correct protocol. Some patients don't get a bolus because they're, the, the physician might think that they're at an increased risk of bleeding. Maybe they have a, they were recently in surgery and they decide that we're not going to do a bolus. So even if they're placed on the correct protocol with the bolus, they still can take up to 24 hours to get therapeutic. And this is a very important issue because even though they're on heparin drip in the computer, they're actually not on heparin. So they're not anticoagulated. And because of this reason, we have internally switched altogether to using Lovenox. And that is not an issue with the interventionalist. So that is something that we talked about before instituting this change. Um, and uh, they they don't really uh, care. I mean, anticoagulation is anticoagulation. So whether you use Lovenox or, or IV heparin. Um, so we've used Lovenox um, for patients, even with, with patients that we think are going to go for an intervention. Uh, uh, GFR or less, you know, I mean, does that factor in, in of at all? Of course, yeah. So if they have a contraindication like obesity or uh, or, or renal failure, then they, they go on heparin because they have a contraindication. But if they don't, then then they, we prefer to use that low venom. And then on what do you typically discharge them and how do you make that decision? Most people, unless they have, again, contraindications, go on DOACs. I think the majority, and that's been adopted really um, early on um, after the publications have come around. Even um, before the cancer publications, some of the cancer oncolog the oncologists have already adopted using DOACs um, as a preferred choice. I have seen still a little bit of resistance on obese patients, even though there's more data to come out to say that it's safe, uh, that DOACs are safe in obesity, that they're not going to be, that they don't have a DOAC failure um, because they're on, on um, uh, you know, a, a set dose as opposed to a higher dose. Um, so, and that change occurs very quickly. So if, say, they come in, they get, they would probably get absurd maybe for 24 hours. We're talking about either high risk or, or intermediate risks. Um, and whatever, inter if they get an intervention or not, um, if they don't decompensate probably within that first 24 hours, we're kind of switching that next day to a DOAC. And if they had an intervention, maybe they um, uh, maybe get switched within 48 hours. So that second day after the procedure, they would get, you know, they overnight, maybe they get the catheters removed the next day, and then that night they get started on, or the next day they get started on DOAX. The same day they leave the ICU, they get started on a DOAX. Maybe stay another day in the hospital, and then they get discharged. And, uh, Kathleen, uh, what question regarding timing of the intervention. Um, is there a window within which you want to perform it, or do you wait and let it settle, or like what's your kind of thought process going through that, and are there any data to guide you one way or the other? 
Yeah, so uh, no data, like with everything else, but the um, the TPA dosing, the timing was based on the early peripheral vascular data, which says about 14 days is kind of your window for catheter-directed therapy. Um, for the thrombectomy, my experience is that going in early is better because the clot settles in and it's harder to pull out even 24, 48 hours later. So this contradicts a little bit with the strategy of let's see how you do up front for the you know 12 hours or so and then decide whether we're going to treat you or not. That may work for the lysis, but for the thrombectomy, maybe it's somewhat detrimental. But it's again, this is just personal experience. So um, that's kind of how we how we deal with this. Hi. So um, in in patients at high risk for intracranial hemorrhage or perhaps who already have intracranial hemorrhage. Um, of the catheter-based approaches, maybe, which which do you prefer? How do you make those decisions? Are there certain situations which would guide you towards using ECOS catheter versus mechanical thrombectomy? Yeah, so I think, you know, as we as we have more experience with the mechanical thrombectomy, any inkling of any kind of bleeding, we're going to go mechanical thrombectomy. If it's not something that's been there for like three or four days or a week. Uh, and the reason being, like, why, why, why risk it? I mean, we had a patient that actually had an intracerebral uh, hemorrhage from the from the low dose catheters because he was already on aspirin plavix, he got heparin and then he got few milligrams of TPA and that you know so um, again I think it's a it's a very useful tool to have because this happens frequently right stroke patients trauma patients postal patients um, so now we've gotten to the point where if you have anything that would suggest that you may bleed even if it's not you know if it's a relative contraindication not an absolute contraindication politics we switch to the from back I can answer the Bova score. I think that there, um, I think per personally on our institution, we we haven't adopted using the Bova score, but a lot of institutions do use it. I don't know that uh, there is uh, any any issues with it. Um, I think we just probably just use PESI more um, uh, just as a preference. Uh, I think they both are helpful in discriminating who's going to be higher risk. The Bova is a little bit more inclusive in the sense that uh, the PESI is mostly exclusive to who's gonna, um, you can exclude, if you're zero, if you're, cis, if you're a PESI of zero, then you don't have to think about it that, you know, but, but then it does, it, it includes everyone else. So it, you still have, if you still have a point of one or two or three, it's, they give you the same percentage. Um, it, I don't think as far as I know, they have been compared head to head in the same population. Um, but the institutions that use BOVA, they, they, you know, 
praise by it and, and, and do yeah, yeah. So, so the, the ECMO side, I think I think you're doing the right thing. I think that's how this should be done. It should be done more frequent um, than we nor we at UPMC do it. Um, and I think if you get good at it and if you have a low complication rate with the understanding that in the specific patient population it's for a relatively short period of time that you support them, so some of the ischemic complications are less, I think that's the way that's the way to do it, to support them for an intervention. What I was saying in the talk is that I wouldn't put them on ECMO just for the sake of staying on ECMO without anything else. ECMO is, facilitates you, it allows you to go to the interventional radiology suite and do this without being worried about the patient crashing, you know, or to the cath lab, so, or to the OR. convert them to ECMO and then yeah. what do you think is your rate of conversion because there, I, from data in general submassive like, could be about 40% of the patients that you yeah. see so it's a good amount of a chunk of Number that that, that you would it, it's small. Yeah. Better definition. Yeah. Yeah, and we saw that with the you know these patients that we take to the lab that have submassive fees. Some of them have a cardiac index of 1.6, and that's very different than one that has an index of 2.8, right? So. Again, if you prefer to believe the, the measurements that we do in the catheter. Yeah. Well, the catheters are the, that's, we have to, you have to put the catheters in the lungs and in the PAs, right? So that's your swan, essentially. So. Yeah, I think, Dan, the big, the whole problem with all this, it seems in my mind, is just the, the uh, sort of, lack of high-quality prospective data. And so we're all operating in this gray area, you know, to a large extent, you know, using good judgment for the most part, you know, but it, there's large degree of heterogeneity. And so who's doing it right, wrong, who knows? And so it's, I think it creates sort of a stress within institutions when it's not streamlined. That's probably a big plus of the PERT is just to kind of collect data, in a, in a thoughtful manner and make decisions in a thoughtful, less stressful uh, manner. Um, but really, I think, it, you know, hopefully the registries and the data that do emerge, you know, pave the way for higher quality um, assessments.
I had a question about in terms of um, kind of the initial workup, who's seeing the patient, what kind of documentation are you putting in for, is there like a, you know, a st- after you had that pert, uh, consensus decision making, is there something documented in the chart? And then um, also when you do the intervention or you decide to go to catheter thrombolysis or thrombectomy for submassive PE, are you also coordinating ECMO availability at the time just in case something turns the other corner while you're in the cath lab? So usually, so at our hospital, and this is different at different institutions, so our uh, what we do is, so pulmonary critical care manages the first call. If it's an in-house call, uh, it goes through to the fellow. If it's an outside transfer that they want to bring in, it goes to the attending. So they're the first person that gets paged. Um and uh, and then depending on what 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 the patient comes with, then we in- involve other services. So if it's a uh, submassive, um, maybe a intermediate low risk that I don't think that they're going to need an intervention, that that I'm the only person that will, might see this patient. If it's intermediate or high, uh, then that's when I decide to involve other people. If it's intermediate high, then I always involved the interventionalist. So in our institution, vascular surgery and cardio- interventional cardiology split the call. So it, we have a call schedule, and it's already preset, and you go through the call schedule and know who's going to be on call this week or what service is going to be on call, and then you involve them. Um, and uh, if it's a high risk, ideally we'd like to involve cardiac surgery, and then depending on what the surgeon might have to say or the interventionalist, we involve ECMO. So it, it's not necessarily something that's set in stone that for every single patient, everyone gets activated. And that's because it's just not efficient that way, right? So no one, not everyone wants to be, needs to be woken up at three in the morning, you know? So, um, and, uh, and that a lot of these patients, like I said, we can wait. I know that, you know, treating fresh clot is ideal in terms of the retrieval aspect of it, but not if you don't have to go through that procedure then if, and you can wait, um, then, then you have the ability of maybe reassessing another point in time, how is the patient doing? Um, so they might not necessarily need to have an intervention at midnight if you can just see how things are going in the morning, and in the morning things are better, they might not need anything at all, just anticoagulation alone. Um, was that the, did I answer your ECMO question? When do we get ECMO involved? So uh, that would be in the, in the high risks, um, uh, whenever either they're getting a procedure, meaning in some kind of intervention, or, or going to surgery, and that they would want to have that backup. Um, I think we rarely do ECMO up front. I think as our experience, we don't, don't, that's not our culture that we normally say, oh, let's just put them on ECMO and then kind of decide. It's all kind of like made a decision um, together just to say, okay, we're going to put them ECMO to then do this other procedure. We don't just put the ECMO and then kind of like wait and see what happens um, for the most part, I would say. Feel that the patient is in the sick bed, the respect, and it's worth the fault of the ECMO team and say, hey, you guys available to 
So what does standby mean for you guys? They wake up, you know, get your uh, scrubs, put them on the floor, get, put the key in the car, have the garage door open, just, you know, FYI, or is it, do they actually come in? Do you kind of put catheters in like that? What is, I guess, what just uh, so I have a better understanding about, yeah, for ECMO. intensivist that's usually a CCM doc that knows how to do ECMO. Uh, the perfusions are in-house all the time. Um, so, you know, when we do the cannulation in the lab, so there's nobody really that needs to come from home. Um, we run it by the surgeons sometimes just to make sure they're okay, but that's a phone call. That's not a... Uh, so the, the mechanism is already there. It's just, you know, taking advantage of it. Okay. Uh, in, in these patients, you know, they're pretty often tachypneic, and I, I worry about them fatiguing from a respiratory standpoint. Uh, none of us want to intubate these patients, obviously. So what are you guys seeing or what do you guys recommend doing as far as respiratory support to keep you from having to get to that point? You're correct. I mean, and, and there's, we all get scared, and um, especially when they're not physically in-house, so they're calling from an outside hospital, and they're saturating. They call you, and they're like, oh, they're on an unrebreather. They're setting like 88. So you're like, do I tell them to write it out and just like accept whatever is going to happen or do I tell them to intubate be and you know give them epi at the same time so that they don't arrest after the intubation and I don't think we know what the right way to do it is and um, uh, we obviously want to avoid the intubation if we can so if we can uh, use high flow oxygen we'll use high flow oxygen if if that's something that or, or, or BiPAP um, but sometimes, uh, if, if they need to be intubated, then you just kind of do it. Um, we've talked with the, our anesthesiologist, uh, about this because of issues that have come up, especially if they're getting a procedure. When they're in the MICU, they're sitting upright and, you know, they're kind of compensating for that. If they get maybe a little bit of sedation, especially if they go to the OR and not the cath lab, they're a little bit more liberal with sedation. So they might get a little bit of an extra dose, plus they get flat. And, and that would be, and they transfer, right? So then maybe they move that thrombus from to be semi-occlusive to fully occlusive, and, and that's when you lose them, um, or they decompensate. So that's always a risk. Um, if we can't avoid, like, heavy sedation, then we would maybe using a ketamine instead of propofol. Um, so, uh, but that's a... Uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it takes like a you know a good cardiac anesthesiologist uh, to to do that in the cat in the in the OR, um, and uh, but but it's a, it's a million dollar question. I don't think that anyone has a has a good yeah. answer. I think I mean yeah. <laughs> early pressers for my like any time I need to go that route. I mean it's your hemodynamic compensation, your RV. I mean, that's what's going to get you hemodynamically. I just have a low threshold before any intubation if I have to go that route to just have them ready or running. Yeah, this is a good point that Belinda made. Uh, when you have your fellows evaluate these patients, look at them when they lay flat for like five minutes, basically, because that will tell you what's going to happen with them in the, in the procedure suite. So um, it's they decompensate very quickly if, if that's not the last reserve they have to, to ventilate and um, you put them flat on the table with just a touch of sedation they can spiral. So. I have uh, just one of my multiple 
uh, pet peeves in medicine. Uh, <laughs> these people know, like, go off, uh, they're off track during rounds. The, um, I am kind of, I think, uh, inotropic support, you know, pharmacologic inotropic support in RV failure is kind of ridiculous. And feel free to, I'm always ready to learn. So I have no qualms. I mean, the, because, okay, is, I mean, with the bulk of the myocardium on the LV, you know, that's, which is typically already underfilled, hyperdynamic, you know, what have you, it, it's the bulk of the uh, exposure to that inotropic dose pharmacotherapy is going to the already underfilled, hyperdynamic ventricle, whereas you're, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, following up on your comment re- regarding the RV and impella, um, you know, if you're not a, relieving the obstruction, you know, what's the point? And especially when you're you probably worsening things in terms of uh, aggravating the LV contractility, you know, ignoring debutement if you have vasodilatation. So anyway, just want to get your your take and feel free to say that, you know, to jump on me for saying the stupidest heresy ever. But um, I have no qualms, but I'm just curious about what your practice is. Well, I think we prefer using norepinephrine at our institution because um, it will give you pressure support. And I, I guess, in theory, it doesn't uh, increase your pulmonary vascular resistance as much as epinephrine. Um and I believe that that is also in, in alignment with the uh, this this recent uh, 2019 European um, so, uh, Journal uh, Society of Cardiology the the guidelines that came out this year also have norepinephrine as the first choice um, in terms of vasopressor usage. Um, I don't know if there necessarily is a role of using milrinone and dobutamine by itself. If you don't relieve the obstruction, you know, as a as a as a as a first line, because primarily they just cause a little bit of vasodilation and then just bottom down their blood pressure. Um, so I I personally don't don't use them up front, um, and they might be used like sort of later on, you know, so right. as a, as an add on the second day. So right. Things are not getting better. Maybe why don't we just try adding a little bit of the vitamin or milrinone, but not necessarily as a as a first thought. Let's just do this with the purpose of. Well, really what I'm thinking to a large extent, and the reason why I have a low threshold to initiate uh, afterload, um, you know, increase the afterload with pressors, is just focusing on that right coronary perfusion pressure. I mean, if it's if I'm increasing the diastolic pressure, you know, we already have increased sort of resistance to flow, you know, with the increased right side of pressures. I mean, maintaining that gradient, in my mind at least, seems to make more sense. Kind of uh, returning that person's myocardial, you know, flow there uh, to normal, as opposed to kind of just, you know, flogging it. Adjunct, right? Yeah, this is a hundred percent agree. Relieve the problem. Well, absolutely, but we don't. You know, the practice that um, Annie was putting us in, and the in the some of the practices here, we don't. We use uh, uh, presses very sporadic. I mean, only for massive space. I mean, you know, strictly to hypertensive, not just to maintain a status quo to help mm-hmm. you improve to get over the hump. Because I mean, like you said, you can get pro. Yeah, yeah. 